now for our feature presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Botching It Up podcast. Every bruise, bump, and botch. Wrestling, you've been put on notice. Oh, let's get ready to ramble! What's up? This is the Botching Up podcast number 14, and our feature this week is Is Ric Flair a cultural icon or just a wrestling legend? As always, you're with me, Benito, my good pal, Basil. Hello. And we've kind of rebranded again a little bit. Not so much. We're going to focus a lot more on our feature of the episode rather than talking about all the wrestling news that has happened during the week because we can't keep up with it with just a weekly episode. We're going to talk a little bit about some stuff we want to put on the table and then we're going to feature mainly on our feature of the week, which is Ric Flair. <laughs> so saying that, is there anything you want to get off your chest? Uh, yes, I have two things that I want to talk about concerning WWE Raw and how this is potentially influenced by the Bruce Pritchard, Paul Heyman shift and how it's not working for me whatsoever. Honestly, can you think of a singles wrestler that has had a poorer string of opponents and a worse title reign than poor old McIntyre? He's just got no strong contenders to make him look strong in return, has he? See, I don't even think it's that. And, and this is what really bothered me about this week's Raw, uh, which happened yesterday, Monday, the 22nd. So I look back at his WrestleMania, his opponents since WrestleMania. He had Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania, Seth, Seth Rollins at Money in the Bank, Bobby Lashley at Backlash. And now it's just been announced that Dolph Ziggler has been traded to Raw and that will be Drew McIntyre's uh, Extreme Rules opponent. To me, I'm not sure your opinion on Drew McIntyre, but he's impressed me quite a lot. He's a really strong babyface promo. His Money in the Bank match versus Seth Rollins was great and by far the best thing on the show. And I really enjoyed his little feud with Bobby Lashley. Why is Dolph Ziggler the challenger of the month? Do you think Drew McIntyre permanently having challengers of the month and going through the roster in that way, do you think that is beneficial to him to show that he's a monster that goes through pretty much everybody they have and only takes a month to completely throw them away? Or do you think that's detrimental to him and he actually does really need a storyline at this point? Not just him, but the roster. It might look good for a month or two to build him up, but after a while, you're going to run out of contenders. You're going to run out, out of exciting matches. He needs something to use his time up, use his TV time up. And if he was involved in a story, it, it would be much more in he would develop him because he doesn't feel like an exciting champion and this is the thing where i feel like they've really gone wrong this week with the Dolph Ziggler thing like to me Dolph Ziggler doesn't even feel like a tv main event no this is very mid-card-ish yeah when i watch raw now i feel like everything's mid-card you've got edge and orton and then the mid-card and i don't understand what's really going on here in terms of who you're trying to push and why because all of the important things and all of the interesting things, apart from Edge and Orton, seem to be happening within the first 45 minutes of either Raw or SmackDown. But the point here is that Bobby Lashley came in with absolutely no heat. Nobody was interested in that storyline. With the help of MP MVP, definitely. They kind of sold it. And that match at Backlash, I don't know what your opinion was on this, because we'd had so much of wrestling at that point that we took a week off. But 
I really enjoyed that match of Backlash. And considering you've got an extreme rules, so-called extreme rules pay-per-view coming up this month, I would have assumed that you would have built on that feud. I feel like they definitely could have had a rematch. There was there was room to work in a second match without Bobby Lashley looking weak and insufficient. Wait, don't you just think as well, I know this brings up the old question of why gimmick pay-per-views exist. But if you have got Extreme Rules, at least try and play it in some way. At least you had Bobby Lashley, they had beef, they had heat, and they could have worked. It still would have been undercooked, but it would have been a match which you look at and say, right, well, yeah, okay, they're having a steel cage match or whatever. As opposed to Dolph Ziggler just going in completely cold. I woke up this morning and I watched Raw and it really pissed me off. Not because I hate Dolph Ziggler necessarily, but it it feels like McIntyre cannot be bothered to play storyline mode in a WWE video game. And he just goes on for five minutes and plays exhibition. <laughs> These people are being picked out of fucking nowhere. And it, you know, we were talking about Bret Hart and Mr. Perfect and how much we loved the fact that they mentioned a match that they'd had two years ago and the fact that they had some sort of chemistry and background with each other and history. Yeah. Well, this is what they used to bring Dolph Ziggler into the main event position on Raw. Dolph Ziggler said, I made you, bro. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I had to look up on Wikipedia that Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre were tag team championships in summer of 2018. And that's what this feud's about. Yeah, they were involved in uh, Baron Corbin's mid-card gang of lonely people that did nothing better to do. So that's what you're basing this this month's pay-per-view on. The case of the person makes the belt, the belt doesn't make the champion, right? So this feels very mid-card. It feels so unimportant. Dolph Ziggler's always been a good hand. He's always been a great worker. But for some reason, we've just never seen him as a star that the WWE have wanted him to be. So now... I don't think Dolph Ziggler or WWE sees him as the star that they wanted. Not anymore, but a few years back they did. So why has he been put in this position and Bobby Lashley's gone back to beating up R-Truth again? Well, I feel like they're having a hard reset in the last two weeks of TV. For whatever reason, they brought... I mean, Dolph Ziggler wasn't even around, was he? Oh no, he was involved in the Mandy Rose storyline. Yeah, he's literally coming out of a comedy feud with Otis. And meanwhile, somebody who took the ball and ran with it in Bobby Lashley, an MVP, who actually impressed me considering I had no interest in them at all, has just been thrown away again. I didn't get it. I don't know. I don't know whether Bobby Lashley is a Paul Heyman guy. I think he is a Paul Heyman guy. But Drew, but if you're... Drew's a Paul Heyman guy as well. I thought that he was going to get de-pushed on purpose and even maybe drop the belt. I could see it happening. You see, you see uh, Drew dropping the belt to. Dolph? No, not to Dolph, but very soon. I don't think Drew's going to have the length of reign he was going to have. He's already had the saddest WWE Championship reign in history. What a wonderfully horrible way for it to go if Brock Lesnar came back when when the first crowd came back and Drew McIntyre lost the belt. Because I can see that. That'd be sadly ironic if he loses it to Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman is involved in the feud somehow. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, about Raw, Big Show. Big Show came back as face, right? So he's heel turned since WrestleMania. Yeah. Uh, face turned again. <laughs> flopping all over the place, that guy. Yeah. But, I mean, did you see what he, is, he did this week? No, I wouldn't. I really hope you didn't because this is going to really upset you, I think. Oh, isn't he involved with the Randy Orton Christian stuff? Right. So Big Show 
has a backstage promo saying it was great to be back last week. And uh, he also plugs his, his Netflix show. His promo sort of consists of four-year-old humor. And then just out of nowhere, he says, behind this exterior, there's an angry, heartless giant. <laughs> and then obviously they have the Randy Orton segment. And apparently that's the route we're going down. Fresh off of the masterclass that Edge versus Randy Orton was, they've decided that Randy Orton is resuming his 2004 legend killer gimmick yeah that's it isn't it i was thinking the exact same thing that he's just now the legend killer again as an older man obviously i think that that's what's happening right but they they don't have any legends (laughs) so they get rick they get big show out of retirement to say hey can you work randy for like five minutes please you know what would have been a funner way of doing this is calling him the i don't know the superstar killer and instead of him trying to defeat legends he now as the legend is trying to defeat all the younger guys that are meant to be the main event players and then they could have used him to maybe up the stock in people like drew mcintyre or i don't know seth rollins whatever. that's the thing that i was also going to play into and i hope that they do play into for sure have randy orton have a five minute match with the big show and then punt him in the head whatever that's okay make it build to something you why not like put him with a younger guy who threatens to take out orton says i'm stealing your gimmick or as you said set this up so that not big show because it doesn't make storyline sense anymore but you get a legend randy orton punts him in the head drew mcintyre comes out and says i'm sick of this it's time i took you out you know, it's the t- I'm the guy now. You're the legend. I'm going to kill you. Yeah, that'd be far more interesting. I don't understand why they're building. Like, they've already given me Drew McIntyre versus Dolph Ziggler. And now we're getting, I assume, Randy Orton versus Big Show. Like, who the fuck wants to watch that pay-per-view right now? Right. So I think there's a bigger problem here. So, right. So the investors review is coming up, right? Which means traditionally someone is getting fired. Yeah. And in this case, it was Paul Heyman. He was the scapegoat. So that Vince can go to the investors and say, hey, we've made a change. We're going to fix something. Just like Bishop was last year. Yeah, exactly. Well, Bishop, they think Bishop was hired exclusively so they could do this. They do it every single time. Yeah, you laugh, but it, it seems to be their pattern. It seems to be how they are getting around investors getting pissed off of them. So a lot of people are saying WWE are panic booking because uh, viewership is getting lower, is getting worse. People aren't interested anymore. But I don't think it's panic booking anymore because they've been booking like this for the last three years. I think this is just now the n- new norm, and we got to get. Used I to would it. agree that they're panic booking a little bit more than usual, but I thought that that was because they couldn't be bothered to put a single shred of effort into anything until they saw a crowd again. But they did the whole uh, wild card thing again a couple of weeks ago, didn't they? And already that's been forgotten. It's gone. They're trying to bring these things in to try and build up viewership and nothing works. And I fear that nothing works because all of this short-term stuff is never going to work. They need to invest in someone like McIntyre for a good six months to get people interested in their program. Do you know what builds up viewership, Ben? What? Creating a decent storyline. Yeah, exactly. I I didn't want Bobby Lashley versus Drew McIntyre. It wasn't up there on my legend tier matches, which I savored over for the next two years. But they did it. They threw it out there. They had MVP deliver some great promos. They had a great match at Backlash. They worked the submission gimmick. I was interested. 
But is McIntyre and Bobby Lashley just two guys that are really good doing the best with what they've got to play with? That's the whole of WWE. You know you're going to get one good match a show, and it's actually sometimes less spotty than AEW's wrestling abilities. But you, it, you don't care because it's swarmed in this in this smog of shit. Yeah, yeah but my point being is the people on the card, the wrestlers, they're all professional and they're all really good at what they're doing. The The people that are letting the show down is the people running the show. And I don't think Vince can see that. He's promoted Bruce Pritchard to take over both Raw and SmackDown and fired Paul Heyman. And I mean, it might be a bit of a stereotype, but it's quite famous that Paul Heyman is willing to stand up for what he wants. So I can imagine he was arguing a lot with Vince backstage, where we all know Vince Pritchard is a bit of a yes man. Well, apparently Vince wants ninjas on motorbikes and alligators in dumpsters. Yeah, it's just, I mean, that's what's causing low ratings. Yeah. Because Street Profits were one of my favorite tag teams. Hell, War Machine, back when they were on the indie scene, were one of my favorite tag teams of all time. And since day one in NXT... They were they were held back from their true ability, and on the main roster, they're even worse. That's the problem, man. You, like you had Big Show recommending that War Machine and Street Profits actually had a match to settle their feud, and you had them acting like idiots, saying, "Wow, that's a great idea." And then, lo and behold, they had a match on Monday, and it was exactly the sort of match you would like: fast-paced, no frills, big moves. I think you would have really enjoyed it, but I watched it, and as much as I enjoyed it, it's too little, too late. So what's that, a two-month turnaround for the Street Profits? Yeah. They're the goddamn tag team champions. I don't know whether having the same creative team on both shows is a good idea or a bad idea. You're going to lose your brand identity a little bit, which might be a good thing because uh, for someone like Charlotte, when she was on both shows, she was basically playing a different character on each show, so consistency might be better. But at the same time, if you're watching one show and it's identical to the other show, you're not going to tune into both. So I think the viewership is actually going to continue to decline. I thought I always thought after trying it over and over again since like 2002, the brand, the brand split, it never achieved anything. They never got it to get where they wanted it to. I thought they were finally setting into a really good routine with it. And you knew SmackDown was the so-called big stars with the shitty wrestling and the the big promos and the big events and stuff. And Raw was the younger guys, hungry guys, doing good matches and having their own little storylines. And it worked. It actually worked. It, I knew what I was tuning into Raw for and I knew what I was tuning into SmackDown for. And you're telling... I, I do understand your point about brand identity possibly becoming a good thing because people obviously people like Charlotte and how they need to have their character altered so it fits one route but giving me a product which I don't particularly enjoy anyway and removing any resemblance of difference between those two products within the product means that I'm watching six hours a week of something I don't like at all we both know that within the next couple of months you won't even know that you're going to go tune in to SmackDown and see AJ because AJ will be on Raw, AJ will be on SmackDown. Well, the brand slit's going to be over by the end of the year. Yeah. It just won't be a thing. Anymore. And then next year, they'll do a brand split again 
And every time they do it, it diminishes the impact because we've seen it happen and break so many times that we'll Nobody give up. Nobody really wants to watch Baron Corbin versus Seth Rollins, but they're more likely to want to watch Baron Corbin's versus Seth Rollins if they haven't seen it in a year. Yeah, and a half. exactly. Having drafts and having uh, trades allows you to be able to do that. I mean, their roster is huge. I, I, I've never understood why they can't make this brand thing work. I've never understood why they can't make anything work. I know I, I, a lot of people really enjoyed Raw this week. They said since the Pritchard era, it's going quicker. Do, I agree that it's going quicker. Like towards the end of the Paul Heyman stuff in the coronavirus, it was it got really, really long. Like it felt longer than two and a half hours. But again, about that, I've always wondered, was that Paul Heyman's fault or was it that he is such a contrasting personality to Vince that there was so much arguing and conflicting on, on ideas that just nothing was getting done productively. Oh yeah, no, I think that that's what's happened. But uh, you, you can already see, with what I'm saying is, you can already see within the shift, the Pritchard effect coming to Raw. And yes, it is quicker to watch, but it's also more damaging to literally everything. Yeah, I mean, Raw had what, two blow-off matches just on Raw, and neither of them felt like important, and you've just wasted months worth of story. I just worry for Alistair Black, Black, man. There's a lot of people that are Paul Heyman guys, and I think that their run is going to be diminished to nothing now. But I can just see Vince McMahon in about a month's time saying Drew McIntyre didn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I mean. Based upon a non-existent crowd. Yeah, exactly. Well, Paul Heyman even came out and said it's impossible to book the shows right now because you never know who's hot. The crowd reaction is so fake right now that we don't actually know who's over and who isn't because you can't gauge the live reaction. Yeah. Well, that, that was those are my rants about wrestling this week. I will quickly say that I really loved AEW Dynamite from the 17th of June. Uh, I really loved the Cody Rhodes match. I thought the Ricky Stark stuff coming out was great. I thought Arn Anderson building up Ricky Starks into the video package really set him out as a big deal. The way Ricky Starks came out and just already acted like he was on Cody's level was great. I really liked the women's stuff, announcing a, a new crazy zombie woman. So this is Abaddon, right? Yes. The zombie yeah. woman. Yeah. So a lot of people say that she's like a uh, cheap version of uh, Rosemary from Impact. But actually, I think she looked she looked better and her uh, in-ring was just as good. I think she looks, she looks a lot more terrifying than Rosemary. Rosemary comes off as typical tacky Impact to me. Yeah. Yeah, she's a walking horror movie, and she looks like it. I agree with you. The way they built up Anna Jay, they gave her that uh, video that they classically give to anyone they're about to push, and then she comes out, and you're like, okay, this is just going to be a regular squash match. Anna Jay's going to be a contender now. Um, and then, in turn, she gets squashed herself, and I thought that was a, a fantastic swerve on the norm. Well, you, you know my girlfriend loves watching the women's division. Yeah. She's very interested in it. I guess kind of in a, to see how her gender's represented on these shows because she's seen some of the crazy old stuff and the you know the misogynistic stuff. So she's always she always gets in the room when there's a, a women's wrestling match on. She hasn't loved AEW too much recently because it feels stagnant and there's about five people and it kind of feels like it's been thrown away. And this Anna J promo came on that we watched and she's like she turned around, she sat down, she started watching it and she said, "Oh, so they finally brought someone new in." And they're like the most boring, stereotypical women's wrestler ever. And she's like, Tch. you know, and she's like, <laughs> the most, 
gave up with it so like completely disgusted yeah and i was like all right just see it out it might be okay yeah and then she she was absolutely transfixed by the dark order shit she loved that it was great because it was actually just giving a woman a character and adding her in, into a stable of men you know so it was actually cross-pollination because a lot of the time with AEW, it feels like the women's division live in a little pocket. It definitely has and, felt like that for the longest time. Yeah, they feel like they're there because they have to be. I really liked on this episode that we actually had three women's stories progressing. And I don't think that's actually ever happened on an AEW TV show. I think it's always been one at a time. And this episode, we had the fantastic stuff with Rebel and Britt Baker, and then Anna Jay and Abaddon with uh, the dark order it was fantastic stuff yeah really great stuff uh, um uh, one the only other point i had to what did you think of the ricky stark stuff by the way you enjoy that i liked it i i really like this idea of anybody can come and contend against cody whether they've whether they're a part of AEW roster or not but then they gave ricky starks a contract afterwards anyway so it felt just like a like a good way to debut him rather than playing on this gimmick that anyone can contend for cody great match as well yeah yeah no it was it was a good match it was a it was a good start for ricky starks i just feel like they dropped the ball on the whole gimmick that they're meant to have set up here oh you you mean they you wanted them to sort of sign the contract on the tv no no i mean i i really like people to come in for like a one-off rather than someone to come in and earn a contract even though they lost to cody okay right no i do i I do get that but then i feel like a lot of the time, sometimes AEW might listen to criticism a little too much. And I think it was Jeff Cobb came in and everybody did not like that because he just came in and then ran away again. Yeah, that was weird because the way he came in, we all thought he was now part of the inner circle. But he was only he was only on TV for like two shows. And I think he was announced the show before that. So he crossed three shows and then, and then we haven't heard of him since. But I see what you mean. Like this is much more of the angle to introduce jeff cobb for a week and then to have him disappear again yeah and then jeff cobb could turn up again in six months and it it wouldn't be that abnormal because cody's cody announced that anybody can come in and i feel like they haven't lived up to that maybe they will i mean it doesn't even matter it's not a big deal didn't didn't enjoy the billy gun mjf match as much as you thought i would you know whoa what i thought you were gonna love it (laughs) it was classic um, classic my two guys It's my two guys, it's MJF and Billy Gunn. And I was like, whoa, this is actually happening in real life and I'm viewing it. And obviously Billy Gunn wrestles like a Nintendo 64 wrestler because he always has. Yeah. Like he's just, he does like karate chops and then looks blankly. But that was fine. They, They quite obviously didn't have chemistry either. But I was just enjoying watching MJF be in the ring with Billy Gunn. But I don't understand why MJF had to cheat to win against Billy Gunn. That's what I didn't that's the what left a bad taste in my mouth because as much as I love Billy Gunn and you know I used to chant his name at wrestling shows which he wasn't present at. Yeah. <laughs> Before anybody knew who everybody had forgotten his existence when he was back back in the cute kip years. Yep. Um but I yeah, I don't see Billy Gunn as at a standing in general or in AEW for MJF to have to cheat to win against him. I thought that should have been a clean win. I feel like he doesn't have to cheat to win. It's just that he cheats all the time. That's just his thing. He would rather... Uh, yeah, but no, they kind of they pulled it off as if... Because 
Gunn hit his finisher, the Famouser. Yeah. And then MJF was like out of it. And I, I feel they kind of made it feel like they only got to that point and MJF won because of the ring. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess so. I guess that's true. Do you think we're going to see a Billy Gunn versus Wardlow match next week or down the line at some point? Oh, no. Wardlow's um, going against Luchasaurus next week. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. That should be a hot match and a half. <laughs> oh, I've got something to rant about. Sure. I know that we need to get on to like actual stuff, plus your mention. Um, oh, no. Let me just say one thing. Did you see the Taz promo this week? Uh, yes, with them in like the parking lot. Why do all the heels hang around a junkyard half naked with their managers I, in AEW? I don't think it's a junkyard. I think it's just the outside of the arena, but they've not established that very well. Why are the big why are the big heels always standing in the same position? Was Lance Archer over the corner with Jake Roberts? Probably, yeah. It's just where they're not allowed in the locker room anymore. Because they're not like they no, have to be got, outside. You uh missed a bullet by us not doing a podcast last week. I was so angry, Ben. Yeah. Why were you angry? John Moxley. Yeah. Why what is he doing having a sixteen minute match on AEW Dark with a jobber? Oh, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. I don't know why. Like, I heard that they were mates in 2002 or something. Who cares? Literally, I was watching the AEW World Champion have a very competitive 16-minute match with a guy that nobody knows, nobody's ever heard of. And John Moxley, I counted them. John Moxley got six two-counts. And Brian Cage is sitting there, and Taz is sitting there on commentary. They're both really awkward. They're like, how am I? Sp- how are we supposed to call this? Because if this guy can't beat a-, a nobody in 16 minutes on the pre-show, then how are we supposed to uh, sell the pay-per-view or the free pay-per-view? I didn't under- That was the craziest thing I think I've ever seen AEW do. I think John Moxley is really treading water quite badly. I- it just feels like he's not connecting with any competitor that he's got. I, I don't know whether it's his character isn't working or whether they're just not giving him a strong enough storyline. I feel like his character's all over the place because he's obviously trying to become Stone Cold Steve Austin light. That's the gimmick. But Steve Austin had a very concerted set of morals and what he thought was good and what he thought is, was bad. He was an anti-hero that had actually had thought put into it. Whereas Moxley seems to change mood based upon his mood because he's he comes he like his whole gimmick is being unhinged and you never know which Moxley you're gonna get. Which means nobody really knows whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, but not in the classical anti hero way. It's not like he's his own guy. It just feels like yeah. some weeks he, you boo him and some weeks you cheer him and you never really know which way is which. Well, with Austin as well, he had he had the perfect villain to him being a hero. He had Vince, and then later down the line, he had The Rock, both great villains. And Moxley doesn't have that. Like you said, we don't know whether to cheer or boo him because he's an anti-hero, but he's not a very good one. So most of the time, it comes across as just being a, a straight, outright bad guy. Yeah. So we need we need a proper villain for him to face off against. I'm afraid I feel like Brian Cage isn't that villain. Brian Cage was a uh, face in Impact. I don't even believe him as a bad guy at the moment. No, he, he's a, he's always been exactly like Bobby Lashley to me. They're like massive guys, but they look so lovely. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, 
Bobby Lashley, like, I don't expect him to beat me up. I expect him to sit at a barbecue with me and have a beer and talk about his daughter, you know? Brian Cage's got the same looking face. Brian Cage looks like he just wants to go to the gym with you so you can uh, spot him as he reps. Yeah, dude, he just wants some wheat shakes with you or something. He, exactly. He, he, yeah, I can't, I don't believe him as, as a, not even a bad guy, but as a villain to help bring Moxley up. I, I don't see it. Yeah, but yeah, I'm glad we didn't do a, a, a podcast last week because I was furious about that to the point where I didn't even text you about it because I knew that we'd have an argument. I just couldn't believe that you had uh, your champion on a YouTube channel giving a 16-minute equal competitive match to his mate. And that's exactly the thing that I talk about every single week on this podcast, the dangers of allowing talent to book whatever they want. Yeah, no, it's very true. Um for everything I love about AEW, I can see now that they are getting some things wrong. Well, you've been watching some WCW. I've, I'm, yeah, but I have fallen in in a couple of weeks where wrestling is in its darkest hour. I have fallen in love with wrestling again because I'm watching some late '80s, early '90s stuff that I've never seen before, and it's fantastic. Sometimes for the wrong reasons, but sometimes just generally, it's fantastic. Um, have you seen uh, Chucky or RoboCop come out and I've not have a chat with wrestlers yet? I've not, but in 1989, uh, Jim Cornette and Paulie Dangerously, Paul Heyman, had a tuxedo match. Lovely. Which I didn't realize even existed back then. I thought that was an invention of the Attitude Era. But it happened in. I did not. I did not know that went back so far. No. Yeah, it happened in 1989, and it was as horribly awful as you'd expect it to be it went on way too long far too long it went on longer than like the first two opening matches of the pay-per-view and um i can't remember i think the worst one i ever remember i remember that it was from no way out 2012 and involved ricardo rodriguez but that's as far as my memory serves and i think that was the longest six minutes of my life i remember the two stooges vince mcmahon's two stooges had um brisket gerald briscoe yeah, they had one back on, I think it was actually on a WrestleMania. But back <laughs> back during the Attitude Era, I, th- I thought that's when it was invented, but no. Anyway. So we get, we get to Flair in a minute, but like, where have you been flip-flopping around in WCW? Where have you been going? So, uh, what what did you send me? You sent me Starcade. Uh, Starcade 85. 85. Yeah, so I watched that one first, and obviously because WWE rewrites its own history, all of these 80s pay-per-views are listed as WCW on the network, and it wasn't until I watched maybe two or three of them I realized these aren't WCW, these are NWA, so they've been rebranded. So the early Starcades are NWA, same as the Clash of Champions, is it Clash of Champions or just the Clash? Yeah, so Clash of Champions was their equivalent of, I guess you can say like Saturday night's main event. Although I think Saturday night's main event came up to compete with Clash of Champions. It was their, uh, they had one every season and it was kind of like what AEW are currently doing with Fighter Fest. It was a big event in a small event that was free to show on TV. Yeah, and um, I loved it. I watched two of those. Again, WWE rewriting history. I thought this was a pay-per-view and I watched the first one. And then I saw the time, the the dates on, on the videos and realized, oh, they're doing like four or five of these a year. And like you said, they're basically TV shows with pay-per-view caliber main events. 
a few years later, Starcade was really weird, man. It was basically a, a one night tournament for the, for the in the early nineties. Starcade um, has always been really strange, as the competition to WrestleMania. It's never had like a united theme or idea. You'll find all sorts of crazy shit on it, which just kind of sums up WCW, really. Yeah, well, this is the weirdest tournament I've ever seen. Starcade '89. I. I pretty much watched the entire thing. There was two tournaments happening at the same time, a singles and a tag. I didn't watch any of the tag matches. I only watched the matches with Ric Flair. But um, it wasn't a, like a single elimination or even a round robin where you get points. You got points on how you won the match. So by pinfall, you won 20 points. Um, count out, you won 15 points. DQ, you won five points. Draw, you won no points. And I was thinking at this point in time in wrestling, is count outs happening so often we can have a tournament that specifically uh, deals with pointing it? Because I feel like if you had this style tournament nowadays, everyone would be like, well, everyone's either just going to lose or draw. Was that the pay-per-view story where like Great Muta got jobbed out? Yeah, Great Muta basically scored no points. So it was uh, Ric Flair, Sting, Great Muta and Lex Luthor. And, um, and Great Muta got beat by literally everyone. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So I remember that being really weird. So there was these four guys and there was four tag teams and the entire pay-per-view was just those four constantly having matches against different people. Um, it, was, it was a really weird show. Uh, but we'll get we'll get to what I thought of the actual Ric Flair stuff in a minute. I told you before and I'll tell you again, you need to go check out WCW 1993, um, especially some of the TV shows. You've got... Uh, excellent young steve austin with brian pillman you've got barry windham who's doing the best work of his career you've got vader you've got sting you've got cactus jack who is like literally the mvp of the show i've watched a lot of cactus jack stuff obviously that's a that's a solid weekly program that i go to when i'm sick of raw and smackdown so i focused a lot on um this era of wrestling where rick flair essentially got fired kind of quit wcw and then he went over to wwf so yeah i guess that year i didn't watch anything because i was watching his wwf stuff yeah anyway so let's get into this properly is (laughs) is rick flair a pop culture icon or is he just a legend within the wrestling realm diamonds are forever and so is rick flair not not to cut the legs off our uh, two-hour podcast here, but I would argue from the get-go that he's not a pop culture icon. My main, okay. my, <laughs> my main argument being, if you were to walk out into the street right now and ask someone who Hulk Hogan is, 99% of people will know who he is, even if they don't know much about him and his accomplishments. If you did the same with Ric Flair, I think only 50% of people would know exactly who he is. Okay, well, I've got an a alternative to this. Maybe Ric Flair isn't the level of cultural icon that Hulk Hogan is, but I would argue that he's actually become part of the cultural zeitgeist, which explains your exact point of nobody would actually know his name, but everybody knows something about him. So I would say that as we saw, this is where it all, all this thing started. We watched the Ric Flair Final Farewell documentary, and it starts with all of the rappers Pusha T, Rick Ross, Offset, he's he's pushed himself into the rap fabric. Then you see uh, American football players and American football fans chanting the woo, doing the woo. 
You've got Joe Rogan talking about him. And I would argue... Joe, Ro- Joe Rogan, who's famously hates pro wrestling, has an undeniable love for Ric Flair. Yeah. And it's, see, I would argue about Ric Flair that your point is valid. More people would know who Hulk Hogan is, but more people know characteristics of Ric Flair. They might not know anything about wrestling, but they might also imagine the good old days of whatever wrestling is if you ask them on the street as somebody with robes going woo somebody every single characteristic of flair i think represents the golden age of wrestler to somebody that has no idea of what wrestling is well i think our argument boils down to the woo catchphrase i think that catchphrase has transcended him especially in sporting that doesn't that make him uh iconic that puts him in the museum of american cultural history yeah, yeah, no, there's definitely an argument for that. I mean, if you're going to compare him to Hulk Hogan as a wrestling fan inside the industry, I would personally say Ric Flair is a bigger legend than Hulk Hogan and has done far more for the industry. I think Ric Flair has outlasted but, Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan has not had a good yeah, decade. Definitely, but outside outside of the industry, I just I don't know how recognizable Ric Flair the man is. So where do we even start with this, Ben? Because, like... We could quite easily have a ten-part series on Ric Flair if if we were allowed to. I want to start with an article you sent me, which was a study into why rappers have become so fascinated with Ric Flair, and they use his imagery, they use his catchphrases, and the argument was trying to make the point that Ric Flair is a symbol of counterculture, standing up against your parents. That's the big one. It said that he was a gifted athlete as a teenager and he defied his parents by going to pro wrestling instead of staying with track and field or baseball or whatever. And in the same way, a lot of rappers have that same prejudice that their parents don't want them to go into the music industry and they have to defy their parents to make it big. So Ric Flair is almost like uh, an icon to aspire to. That's uh, one one valid point i would also uh, attest to add to that i've got five points as to why rick flair is the greatest of all time and why rick flair has impacted the earth <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say i make i make um, no argument that he's the greatest of all time i would definitely put him on that list too talking about the rap article uh it's one of the five points that i've got as to why Ric Flair is so important and it's the aesthetic it's the lifestyle which goes into other headlines that I've got regarding Flair but it's the suits the women the watches the cars the lifestyle the alcohol like he represents what rap represents before rap represented it well the easiest way to put it is he was a baller before bowling even existed I mean it shows have you been on Spotify and typed in Ric Flair (laughs) no I haven't I did that another the other day, and there's f- at least over fifty songs just with his name in it that starts with one of his promos and then goes into some form of rap music. Well, Killer Mike, one of my favorite rappers, has a song like a tribute dedicated to Ric Flair, so I don't doubt it at all. So I think that's that's the number one thing. That's the first thing that we can talk about that sets him apart. You think of any other professional wrestler from the eighties, nineties, or two thousands, or since who had that level. I mean, it's. I know it's stereotypical, and I know it's been gone over hundreds of times, but styling and profiling, man. I can't think of a single other wrestler who 
dressed in those Armanis, who had those crocodile shoes. He he basically said in in the documentary that he was giving away free promotion to some of the um, biggest tailors in the country and some of the biggest shoemakers in the country every single week. And you would check it and you would look at it and you can see it on TV and it's real. And that's what the first thing that sticks out for him from anybody else. We both know this, but just in terms of fashion, it's not a gimmick. You can quite clearly see that's a Rolex watch on his arm. And suddenly, if you believe that you, if you know that that's a Rolex watch on his arm, what else is he not lying about? You say it's not a gimmick. He's even admitted himself. It, it was a gimmick to start with. The Nature Boy was a take on, uh, was it Buddy Rogers? Buddy Rogers, yeah. Yeah, he was the original Nature Boy. And he, when he was a young wrestler, he wanted to mold himself and have a better character to help push his career. But during the 80, late 80s especially, the, the gimmick became the man and he became what you saw on TV. Yeah, the lifestyle is the lifestyle, right? And you can't fake clothes. We've seen some awful dodgy suits in wrestling history, people pretending to dress up for a particular reason. And another thing with wrestling is it's always out of style, always. There were mullets galore in the 90s. There were fanny packs galore in the 2000s. Sting has like this awful rat tail going on in the early 90s. (laughs) Flair's the only one that always looked like he was with the current moment. And that's another very important point about Flair. When he was in 1984 or whatever, he felt like he was in 1984. As much as Eric Bischoff wants to say anything else, in 1998, he looked like he was in 1998. He never lost touch. He never lost touch of everything going on around him, and he never lost touch in popular culture. I think the easiest way to see it as, as a visual point is his hair. Back in the 80s, my God, the amount of hair that man had. And it was always styled. But then <laughs> by 2004, he's like inches away from a buzz cut. So as the decades go on, his hair is getting shorter yeah. and shorter and shorter, but still always styled because obviously it has to be. Yeah. Um, where do you want to go, go to next? Where do you want to walk through the annals of flare time? So let's discuss. We're both in agreement that he's a legend, and whether he's an icon or not, let's discuss why he's an icon. Okay. Um, I want to start with the the, the woo, woo! Um, because there's a lot of argument. I saw a tons of argument on Reddit, especially about who invented the woo, and a lot of people thought Sting invented it and Ric Flair stole it. But I think. Any hardcore wrestling fan will know that the Woo existed long before Sting was a uh, main event player. And But I didn't know that it actually came from the uh, Great Balls of Fire song. We were reading the same article. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when Flair heard that on the radio, he just thought it was a cool thing to do. And what really blew me away, living in 2020, watching matches in 1980, he's doing chops and the crowd aren't wooing and it feels so wrong. One thing that I learned about Flair watching back these matches is the woo didn't just necessarily mean I'm great. There's a fantastic moment. I'm not sure whether it's Rhodes or I think it might have been a Barry Windham match from 87. And he is getting chopped to shit. Like he's getting beaten up by Barry Windham. And he fires himself up and gives the loudest chop I've ever seen and does like a, almost like a cat 
like like a, a, a like a cat that's about to attack you he goes down like low and he goes you know <laughs> like like a really menacing aggressive woo and the, i'd never realized that the woo was originally used for other things it, that in that moment it was like back off dude like i'm about to kill you uh, which i which is it's so fascinating and so cool to me as a long-time rick flair fan to see that the woo was used for other things and it actually kind of worked like like and that's another thing i want to get into flair with at a certain point later in the show but um just the way that he could flip just like that and he'd go from comedy central to the most serious guy in the room and yeah. I, I saw that in his character and his personality a lot but i've just never quite seen that little moment where he changes the tonation of the woo into a threat i thought that was so cool yeah and um you can say the same thing about um sting's version as well um some of the earliest matches i watched with sting he's not actually saying woo it's more of just a like woo scream yeah and uh as his career develops, it, it, it starts to sound more and more like a woo. I think on purpose, because when they were feuding, you then had somewhat of a woo-off. So I think it was by design that those two ended up with the same catchphrase. Well, I always felt like Sting was the same to Ric Flair as Ric Flair was to Buddy Rogers. It was kind of a passing of the gimmick. Yeah, if you like. I mean, it's more of a surfer dude gimmick than a style and profiling but it's it's on the same level another thing that i noticed about that we might as well just go free for all now because like there's so many small points that we can make that i don't really can't really fit into boxes um but if you go through the 80s promos which are absolute gold like you must have watched some of these I, um i've spent more money on spilt liquor than you've made in a year and i can't hold these alligator shoes down just a classic line, man. But one thing I noticed um, is, and this is my second point about Flair, prestige. Yep. He repeats the word NWA, World Heavyweight Champion, three to four times a promo. He is talking about he is the champion, and that's the only thing in his life that is meaningful. And he says it over and over and over again. He faced uh, Harley Race very early in his career, 1983, for the championship, Starcade. It was actually called A Flare for the Gold, which later became a talk show. But the whole idea was him basing around this almost ob obsessiveness with being the champion. Something that blew my mind about the wrestling business in general, how he took himself to another level just by respecting the championship, you can be a great wrestler and a great worker and have a ton of charisma, but you're not necessarily a great champion. And you're a great champion the way Ric Flair does it, by talking about his NWA heavyweight championship like it is literally the only thing in his world. He talks about it like it's his baby. Yeah, and he did that whether he had it or not. When he was going for it, he did it. But once he got it, he didn't stop. He kept saying it in the exact same way, in the exact same fashion. This is the most important thing of my life. And when was the last time you saw that on TV, man? What I really liked, especially in the um, 80s and a little bit in the early 90s, is they didn't just talk about the championship. They talked about the prestige. Again, this is the NWA time. So being the champion had a slightly different 
meaning to what being a champion now does because you'd have to tour, you'd have to do more shows in front of more people and stuff. But um, they also talk about the money, like a lot. Yeah. The commentators are always saying this is for the NWA championship and a million dollars. There was always this level of if you're the champion, you're earning a ton, or if you win this match, you're earning a ton of money. And it was, I always, I felt it was such a simple way to give a match more importance because we know now after kayfabe that that money is not there and also we didn't see that money on the tv products there was no showing of it the commentators just had to say it to make the match feel more important that's something they could do now i mean wwe or aw could say hey whoever wins this match gets fifty thousand dollars they don't need to show us that money for us to believe and isn't it another thing uh, about the old days when they had like a squash or a, a monster guy, or a guy going into the match and trying to pin in in a minute. They'd say they don't get paid by the hour, kid. Like they, yeah, it was a cash in hand, money grab business, and it, you it was sold as that, and it felt legitimate. Now you know that these guys on are on salary. Well, <laughs> it doesn't quite have the same effect, does it? Well, Jim Ross says things like that on AEW, and I even mentioned it a couple of weeks back that I really like these kind of things that Jim Ross is saying because it. It gives reasons to their actions. Yeah. Um. I, I, on on that point, for a brief second, I just want to say how much I love Jr. I mean, we've said it before that he's one of our favorites, but I mean, back in 1989, Jr. was slaying it as much as he is now. Yeah, he's really unstoppable, and it's a a reason why I refuse to take jip about Jr. when he mumbles his lines or he's bored in a match, because really, if you look back. Over the past 30 years, he's been the only consummate voice of wrestling who's not just done his job, but done it exceedingly well. And think about how many talents he's successfully put over in all of those years. Just untouchable, really. And the commentary teams in the early 80s were just dire, man. It, It felt like I was watching a snooker game. Not a wrestling match. Some people are killing me for talking about that, like Golden, uh, about Gordon Soley like that. I, I, I get it because maybe in those days, you know, this is a legitimate sport. So the announcers, the commentators have a more sport orientated style. But I, I don't know, even when you watch football, you know, the commentators get excited when something happens and, and their voice help builds up the dramaticness of oh. the match. I That's why like- I'm so excited about Samoa Joe because Michael Cole sounds like you put him on charge and you or you take his batteries out when the show's finished. And he's teaching other guys that. Like, uh, t- is it Todd Phillips? Tom Phillips? Yeah, I, sometimes Tom I can't Phillips. tell. I, I can only tell whether it's Michael Cole or not, depending on the show I'm watching. And I know that one's on one and one's on the other. That's the only way I can yeah. tell that they're different people. I don't like this clean commentator style where they're just monotone and everything sounds the same and and each match sounds the same so there's no difference between match and whoever those commentators are that probably were great commentators the 80s had that style and the early 90s and jim ross specifically just bring a whole extra level of drama ross and shivani stand out in any generation really oh shivani as i'm going back through the years watching wcw stuff shivani is my boy i love my childhood I watched a 1998 show. I think it was just an episode of Nitro, uh, not for a podcast, for a different project. You got um, Mike Tanay, which obviously, as a big TNA guy, I, I popped at, and then Tony Schiavone, 
was killing it as well. And I was like, these these are the guys. This is the perfect commentary team, right yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, well, give or take Excalibur. No, no, no. I mean uh, Tony Schiavone and Mike today. Those yeah, two. No, but in, give or take Excalibur. You hate you hate him. <laughs> I just wanted to. I just wanted to make a comment saying uh, to to just shit on him. I know you're talking oh. nitro. I just <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> um. So children's literature, right? Okay. The most successful children's literature becomes world famous. It transcends adult literature, film, culture, and entertainment to become like a, a just a, a roller coaster of money. We're talking Harry Potter. We're talking Roald Dahl, things like that. And I think a lot about why this happens and why these things just blow away out of success and literally the entire world goes to see them. And it's basically because they play on adult themes, but dress it up in fantasy. And if you get that distinction wrong, doesn't make people feel that primal emotion that they should confront with children's literature which is fear and scare, scares and because what children's literature basically does is play on the primal emotions of human beings, dress it up in a way that it's acceptable, not only acceptable for the whole family, but you can, you can sort of ingest it without consciously necessarily realizing what you are eating. Yeah, you can enjoy it on face service, but you can also enjoy it on the themes that are stated deeper within. It's such a fine line between getting that right and, and wrong. And I tried all day to think of a different metaphor, maybe more suited to wrestling, that would adhere to this point. But basically what I'm saying is Ric Flair literally does that. And that's why I think he's the greatest of all time. The subtleties and distinction between Carneyland and reality for Ric Flair are, are so minute, I can't even go, really go into detail of how he achieves them. Take his entrance again, Ric Flair versus Harley Race, Starcade 1983. It's the most magnificent entrance I've ever seen. The lights are black for five, six minutes. You start to hear that theme tune. And when you think he's coming out, he doesn't. And it just builds and builds and builds. And uh, there's suddenly there's streamers and he finally, there's a spotlight on him and he walks in and the crowd goes mad. He's also the most serious-faced man I've ever seen. And it's Flair, sometimes, you must have seen it watching all your matches. Sometimes when he comes down, usually when he's playing face, he comes down with the most serious look, like uh, taping, the, taping his fingers to show that he's a Mac technician. Things like that, which are deadly serious and go back to the idea of amateur wrestling and a real fight. But then I'm sure that you're seen just as much as me that he shows his ass a lot. He plays up. He flip-flops on the floor. He does his face-flop spot. Yep. He gets uh, thrown onto the floor trying to do a top turnbuckle almost every match. He plays comedy spots continuously while somehow still being that Rolex-wearing serious motherfucker that you don't want to mess with. The way he intermingles comedy and seriousness, ridiculousness and uh, prestige I think that is why Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler of all time. And I'm sorry for that children's literature metaphor, but there is literally no other way I could I could figure to phrase it. Yeah, you're right, man. He's he's hit a very perfect balance of being a player, but then also being the most legitimate champion in the game. When you think about how he puts all of those things together without making himself look stupid, at least we're talking like the 80s, 90s here, 
it seems almost impossible. The 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 the, the fineness of when he decides to go for a butt spot, when he decides to show that he's he's turned up to be the most serious in the game. And to the point that the crowd and the audience don't notice which one's which and why. And it becomes a 3D character, despite the fact that there's so many irreg- irregularities within those two different personalities. I, I can't even comprehend how how that's achieved so naturally. What I find amazing is not only that he achieved that, but he got to that stage so quickly in his career. It feels like there's not a lot of content out there where he's just the mid card trying to find himself, trying to build his character. It seems like in the late seventies, he was discovering the woo. He was taking on the nature boy persona. And then in the early eighties, bam, he's now in contention with Harley race for the NWA championship. And it seems like it was almost zero to a hundred straight out of the gate. And for the rest of his career, really. Yeah, but that's what I mean. He just got to that. He got to that level so quick and so fast. It's almost unbelievable. And stayed there. But that's the that's the another major thing about Ric Flair. He stayed there. He's. I don't know whether it's pointed or not, or whether he meant to. But his timing throughout his history seems almost impeccable. The the way he understood the territory system and the way that kept him fresh for a long period of time almost took him. He almost used the same mentality on TV. Like if you if you look at his last WWE run, he came in as a fight for control over the power of WWE, the Vince, whatever. Yeah. He went from general manager to undertaker. He threw himself onto the biggest name in the business at that time, which was Triple H. And I'm sure Triple H would love to think that Triple H threw himself onto Flair. But I think Flair knew what he was doing, yeah. confidence or not. That's definitely how they play it off nowadays, isn't it? But, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure Flair knows a thing or two uh, uh, and a lot more of a thing or two than Triple H about how to stay relevant, given his history. Yeah, how to get the most TV time. He immediately gave himself another four years, not just by being with Triple H, but by being with incredibly young guys who had a lot of potential. He suddenly was able to offshoot into... Randy Orton if he wanted to, Batista if he wanted to. He had years of storylines with these guys without even really trying. 2006 obviously was a bit of a low year from what I can see. Like he sort of became that legend past his prime and he was winning championships with like Roddy Piper or whatever. But then he went straight into almost, again, a massive gimmick, which was every match was his last chance match. And then he went into his retirement. And it's just like... It's, I wouldn't even call it politicking. Like he just manages to s- take that territorial mentality and somehow find himself fresh-faced within the same company. Yeah, which seems impossible when you look at today's uh, entertainment. Yeah, without knowing the man, I would argue that he enjoyed his time in the territories far more than he did with WWF. If we look at his first run in WWF, it looks like. It was filled with either conflicting creative ideas or he wasn't allowed to be himself. Um, he wasn't allowed to be the guy that he was five years earlier in the NWA. Oh, yeah, I'd probably agree. I mean, that that's a, something I've never quite understood. I assumed that there was an argument with Vince, but that was a really short WWE run, wasn't it? Yeah, so this was because WCW wanted him to change his gimmick. 
quite famously now they wanted him to play Spartacus, and he. What? I've never heard this story. You never heard this. No. So when WCW, I think this is basically around the time WCW were basically splitting up from NWA, and so this is like 1991. Yeah, this is really early 90s. Um, okay. And they want they want a fresh new image, not only for the company but for all of their new stars. And they wanted Ric Flair to basically have a Gladiator Spartacus gimmick. Wow. And Ric Flair knew that that was a death sentence. So the guy that was running WCW was in contract negotiations for Ric Flair. Ric Flair wanted more money and also he wanted to have um, basically creative freedom. I guess the guys would call it nowadays, but back then he just wanted to keep his character. So contract negotiations failed. Ric Flair jumped shit over to WWF. And the same situation happened there. He had no control. Vince wanted control over him. So he jumped back to WCW where now it was a whole different regime controlling the show. And they wanted the classic legendary Ric Flair to continue being himself. That's basically what happened in those three, four years. That's a crazy story. I've never heard of somebody trying to repackage Ric Flair. That's really mental. It's unbelievable, really, especially in the early 90s after a decade of Ric Flair being on top that you'd want to change anything about him. Going back to um, organic timing, with him kind of always seeming to be in the right place at the right time, that did more for his stock than anything, man. I'm pretty sure he left WCW while he was still NWA world champion, walked into WWE, was world champion there within a year, and then walked out like six months after being WWE world champion, and a year after winning the Royal Rumble from starting at number one. The point I'm making is Flair somehow has survived 30 years in a wrestling business, but never lost either his credibility while he was a full-time wrestler or his esteem. Like he was always coming out of a championship reign, which is a joke now. But when he moved companies, when he moved territories, that's why he sold so many tickets. Like the, the idea that somebody can walk into WWE for two years become champion, win the Royal Rumble from number one, and then leave again, go straight into a world championship program with another company. It's unheard of. He walked into the WWF with the big gold NWA belt, and the story was that he is the real world champion and that he wants to take on the WWF champion to prove once and for all which belt is better. I just love that back in those days, things like this could happen. You've always been a Hogan guy in the ring you've always been a hogan fan do you regret the fact that they never had a massive wrestlemania main event during that run in 94 he was meant to face off against hogan at one of the wrestlemanias i don't know 92 and then it was swapped out for the ultimate warrior or or no match show match it was supposed to be hogan flair and then it became hogan sid and flair and randy savage yeah flair and savage I, I don't know why that switch happened, but think how crazy it would have been to have Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan. Main event. Yeah, main event for the WWF World Championship. Ric Flair walks in with his fake NWA World Championship. I'm sure the commentators would have called it fake. Yeah. That would have been fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah. It, it really does feel like one of wrestling's lost moments. Because I know we saw it time and time again since but it, it just didn't have the same impact I, I don't feel and this is coming from a wcw fanboy you know but it, it, i just feel like 
Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan at Uncensored or whatever is not Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan in at WrestleMania. Whether it was a good match or a bad match, that would have been a moment for the ages. 100%. Definitely would have been. I've got a fun anecdote about these two. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read it quote from quote because it's fantastic. In 2009, Hulk Hogan went on the Hulkamania Let the Battle Begin tour on November 21st, 24th, 26th, and 28th in Australia. Hogan performed with wrestlers like Spartan 3000, Heinrich, Eugene, Brutus Beefcake, and Orlando Jordan. Um, the main event of all four of the shows was Hogan versus Ric Flair, and Hogan won all four of the matches because no other wrestler in history has won more matches against Hogan than Ric Flair. That's so not it was true, a, is it? So it was a giant fuck you, I'm going to beat you four nights in a row. <laughs> that's what it is. He booked himself to, to go oh. over the one guy that's pinned him the most times, apparently. Ric Flair doesn't care at that point, does he? He just thinks Hogan's a sad old bastard. Yeah, why would Ric Flair care? He gets like, paid to go on holiday in Australia. Does anyone really care if six-year-old Hogan is booking himself to beat 70 year old Flair? Like... <laughs> That's so it's Hulk just, Hogan. It's, it's unbelievable. That's what I thought. It's just crazy that his ego is that huge that he had to get his win back in a house show tour in Australia. Mm. With Orlando Jordan and Heinrich. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the co-main. What a show, man. What a, what a lineup. I hope there's like a DVR of that somewhere. Anyway, yeah, I thought I'd just share that. I know they they faced off loads and like I think they had a little they had a little feud across many years in WCW which were all bad. Uh, did you ever watch their first match, which was Bash at the Beach, nineteen ninety four? No, so that was one of my the best Hogan matches I've ever seen, and I don't understand how it took me this long to watch this this match, but it, it, it's quite something to watch. Flair put Hogan in the figure four and then later on Hogan put Flair in the figure four just a really surreal moment yeah one match I did watch which was similar to that is Ric Flair dropping the belt to Bret Hart at a um superstars taping yeah that was his, that was the the end of his reign wasn't it weird way to go yeah that was how he lost the WWF belt and in that match Bret Hart puts him into the figure four yeah, it seems to be a spot that happened a lot, definitely to pop the crowd and a move that, like an oh my god moment, his own move is going to be used against him. And if you really think about it, it happens a lot nowadays with Charlotte. Yeah, that's true. I just thought it was so strange to see Hogan doing it to Flair because yeah. those two are just, I don't know, yin and yang. It's just impossible for them, for me to imagine hogan on the floor doing a technical move it's just so weird. <laughs> yeah when you say it like that yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense um but i think i don't think it was a hogan thing i think that's a rick flair thing he's always he's always given it his move to his competitor as he knows that's a really good spot to pop the crowd yeah i, uh, I, I, wanted, a lot. I wanted to make a really quick point uh which might sound a bit weird about the way flair uses his hands um, I don't know whether you've really noticed his hands, but they're continually drooping. Yeah, yeah. He's always got them like out, which I thought about for a while. Or he's always got them near his chest, and I thought about this, and it's he's making them like 
purpose. Like there's so many small things which I don't even understand whether they're conscious or not. But by making his hands droop, he's always ready to put something into a lock. Is that because he was quite a prolific amateur wrestler, do you think? Yeah, I reckon so. I reckon so. It just, this is one of the subtleties that we were talking about where these tiny things that you don't even notice uh, add to his ability as a performer. Like the, the use of his hands, the, the idea that he's always ready to grapple and uh, mat technician somebody onto the floor, into an arm lock, into an arm drag, is, is again an unexplored territory like when you start really focusing on the way flair uses his hands on the way he uses his movement and you then like you you switch off the best of flair and you go watch raw it's just insane like these guys are doing the basics in comparison to what flair did every match yeah, well, um, well, let's talk about Flair in ring because he's got a lot of go-to spots that happen across pretty much all the matches I watched in preparation for this. Um, and I just want to say that the man has maybe the best backdrop in the business. He takes at least two in every single match I've ever seen from the 80s all the way up to 2004. And every yeah, go-to Flair spot, I've, I've noticed. And every time he takes it, he gets himself in the air higher than anyone um, and sells it like it's the most painful move in the world. It's fantastic. Oh, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful when he actually goes down, down on the backdrop? I, I saw it um, at its best at, at the Undertaker-WrestleMania match, but also he does an amazing one, I think, when he's coming off the ladder at the Money in the Bank match that he had. Yeah. He just screams in pain like more so than any other wrestler you like you watch selling yeah and it's such a simple move but the way he sells it it feels like the most devastating move yeah and well, that's the thing about flair as well like not only does that work on a um selling level but it also works on a saving the body level which is why i think rick flair lasted so long if you actually look at flair's work he takes two three backdrops uh he does the figure four he does the knee he does a lot of chops like he's not taking anything hard he's just selling small things and making them look massive one thing i did notice though for the 80s when he was in his prime he went to the top rope a lot uh, pretty much at least once in every single match but 90 percent of the time his opponent would catch him and pull him off the top rope so yeah 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 that's definitely a support that's definitely a spot and i was thinking about that as well and why that actually exists and i think that that's a really great spot because i started to look at when it happened and it happens usually in the match when rick flair has become frustrated and he can't do anything on the floor right so he goes to the extreme of going out of his comfort zone in into doing something crazy to try and get his opponent to get pinned, which is not the stuff that he knows. And he always gets caught because he's telling everyone that that's not his thing. And yet the one or two times he doesn't get caught and he lands a flying elbow or a diving clothesline, the way the crowd just goes crazy is is yeah, because they don't see it often. Yeah. And I mean, you Uh, expect it because of the way that he's always booked himself to be taken down. And I mean, he, he's he's an interesting face because I, I I think 
even if you don't call him the greatest of all time, which I personally would, he is the greatest heel of all time. Without a doubt, I think that there's no competition with that. Well, this is another thing I've noticed watching matches through the ages. There's a lot of times he either leaves a company, comes back, or he's injured in WCW, and then he returns. And it he every time he returns, he returns his face. But it seems to be that he only lasts his face for a couple of months. And I think this is because he was so beloved by the crowd that the bookers knew when he returned from a long time away, people were going to want to cheer him. People were excited to see him. But he naturally is a heel. It seems to be that throughout his entire career, there was always this difficult line where the crowd wanted to love him and cheer for him but the bookers had to try and heel turn him that's a really good point it makes a lot of sense as you get into rick flair's later years Uh, if you're looking at the 90s uh, a lot of people complained when hulk hogan first came in that flair was having his best babyface run and they had to turn him really really quick so that they could get flair heel for a hulk hogan match and everybody's just kind of like, why didn't you get Hulk Hogan to face another heel? And then you could have built up to the Flair match. Yeah. But it makes perfect sense to me because Flair is the best heel in the business. Who do you put against somebody that's massive, somebody that needs like the biggest heel in the business? You get Flair. And it's the thing that you mentioned to me the other day, the collision in North Korea. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that speak to Flair's ability? Who's the only guy that you can think of in wrestling that can get 191,000 fans, or not fans, but people that get sit, literally sitting there against their will. People that don't even know what pro wrestling is. Yeah, but not only did they not know what pro wrestling was, but it was a mandatory government law that they went to that show and they watched it. Yeah. Who's the only person throughout that entire show that got them to pop? Flair, man. Flair was the only person. And it goes back to what we were saying about um, the different... the in-between of Carney and seriousness, he overplays so much. Even North Koreans can understand his language in the ring. They understand what he's doing. They understand that he's a coward or whatever. And well, in, in that specific match, it was booked to perfection because Ric Flair controls um, Antonio Inicchi, the like the entire match. He, he basically bullies him. And then they have the classic underdog comes back in the last yeah. moment. And if you ever get to watch any of the other matches on those those two nights of wrestling, the crowd are silent. And like you said, they don't want to be there. But this main event, they're just as loud as like a WrestleMania. They're suddenly into it because you've got this. I mean, the American is automatically the bad guy because of course he is in North Korea. But he plays his character perfectly. Could you seriously think of any other American character who could play that level of heel to North Korean people? No, because I mean, Anyone else famous enough at that time to be on that card, Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, whatever, that they w- they couldn't be able to play themselves as the big, dastardly, bad guy America. Yeah. There's no way they could do it. But the point I was making there was that I think that's why he's always turned heel. Because he, as you, as you correctly said, he is so lovable that he's an... As 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 well as being a natural heel, he fucking he can make a lot of money as a face. You've always got a new guy coming through. You've always got a new big deal. You've always got a new thing to push, and you always need to have that foil. And there's no better foil in the eighties and nineties as uh, uh, for a babyface than Ric Flair. Apparently, the reason behind Hogan and Flair breaking down is 
Vince wanted to book Sid into a monster heel, Hulk and Flair having some issues, which just caused the match to completely break down. And they, they kind of wanted like a 15-minute big man move match and they wanted a 30-minute masterclass, which Savage and Flair became. I don't think that's the complete truth. I think that Flair came in as an outsider to Vince's business. Hogan was Vince's baby. Both guys recognized just how masterful Flair was. And I think that they were scared of Flair overshadowing Hogan. And I think that's why you never got that match in WWE. And it, it, yeah. If you go back to Batch of the Beach 94, there's a very key moment, very subtle, very small moment, where Hogan and Flair are facing off for the first time. And they're really milking it. They're going around three, four minutes, three, four minutes. And then Hogan turns his back. They're supposed to be facing each other down. Hogan turns his back on Flair and plays the crowd. And I've seen that happen quite a few times in Hogan matches. And the guy always follows him or tries to turn him around, uh, like get his attention, which means that Hogan wins, right? Hogan's got the attention now. Flair just sat back and smiled. (laughs) Flair just sat back on the apron and smiled. He knew what Hogan was doing 100%. He wasn't going to play into it. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. And I think just to prove the point, I want to talk about a string of matches in 89. That Starcade that was ridiculous that I spoke about. Uh, but before that, he had two matches against Terry Funk across um, about a four-month period. And in the first... I watched Clash of Champions 9. Yeah, so in that match, he's playing the face against Terry Funk. But in the first match, the roles are reversed. And Terry Funk is an awful face. And Ric Flair, although he's a great heel, the chemistry is not there. And it's actually a really bad match. They swap it around about a couple of months later. Terry Funk's now the heel. Ric Flair is the, is the face. And Dave Meltzer gave that match a five stars. It was perfect. It was, it was a great brawl. And then a couple of months later, we have Starcade, this weird tournament that I already discussed. Is what it is. Yeah. Sting is face, Ric Flair is face. And at the end of the show, Ric Flair brings Sting into the Four Horsemen as, as the fourth member. Uh, Tully was missing at this point. They knew that this whole Sting being the, the, a member of the Horsemen would be a massive thing for the crowd. It would get really over. But Sting... And the horsemen are going to clash. You know, it's not really going to work. So a couple of months after that, they have to turn all of the horsemen heel again so that you can have Ric Flair versus Sting for the championship. My point point being, Ric Flair never really loses any momentum throughout this flip-flopping all over the place. But you could argue he's almost flip-flopping as bad as we joke about Big Show doing. Very valid point, which I've never really thought about and probably true. And yet, Flair can get away with it. Why is that? Yeah, he gets away with it. It's, it's totally fine for him to be face one month, heal the next. But when someone like Big Show does it, we rip him apart for it. And also it destroys his character. But for Ric Flair, I'd, it seemed to work for him. If anything, though, that shows you that Big Show is a creation, whereas Ric Flair is a person. It shows that the problem with flip-flopping guys and what we call destroying their character is that they didn't have a strong enough character to survive it. Yeah. Flair is Flair. You're never going to get anything other than Ric Flair. So if he turns face, he turns heel. It's just Ric Flair. If Big Show keeps twisting around whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, everybody gets confused because nobody really knows who the Big Show is. Yeah, exactly. You could say that even when Ric Flair is heel or face, his character is exactly the same. It's just he's cheating a little bit more or he's pandering to the crowd a bit more. But it's still essentially he's the same guy. Whereas with Big Show, when he's heel, he's 
crushing people's skulls when he's face he's hugging people in the crowd it's is a vastly different character what we were talking earlier about raw and about how he was making netflix jokes and four-year-old humor but then he also said oh beyond the exterior i'm a heartless human being it seems like big show's gimmick for the last 20 years is having schizophrenia like he <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. that's a good way of selling how much he's flip-flopped but it's not even like heel to face heel to face heel to face like literally the raw promo he did both in the same promo now that's his new gimmick i think he's just done it for so long he just doesn't know who he is anymore (laughs) Um, i I just see him as the guy from the water boy yeah yeah i just wanted to make a comment about terry funk the way he changes style for opponents it's especially clear when you go dramatically through history um, but Terry Funk, he had an I quit match with. It was vicious, rough and tumble. Um, again, when he faced Harley Race at 83, it was vicious, rough and tumble. Then you then you skip to Barry Windham, technical masterclass. Ricky Steamboat, technical masterclass. He he changed. And it wasn't. You could even have two guys of the same style with the slightest subtleties of style that he would change his gimmick to. And I think that. When we get to like 97, 98, he becomes like a greatest hits montage. Yeah. Doesn't he? In his matches. And he plays whichever greatest hit works with who he's facing. A a classic example of that is um, Undertaker in an unsanctioned match at WrestleMania. He plays all the spots which look the most dangerous and he leaves the. the knee the knees out you know and he leaves uh, more of the mat moves out and he like does more chops he does more bumps really the only thing different between that flare and the flare of the 80s is that it's more clear that he's doing the greatest hits because he doesn't have the subtleties of his younger self but when you look at, at each individual flare match he is doing the same spots but he's doing them organically based around the other person's style and character because his moveset seems completely variable on the other person despite the fact that it has a lot of the same moves. Yeah, a Ricky Steamboat or a Bret Hart match compared to going against Terry Funk is completely different, like you said. And it's crazy how he can switch it on a dime so easily. He switches it on a dime without ever fully changing himself, which is the incredibly impressive thing as well. Yeah, because his, all his signature spots and his movements, like you said, are exactly the same. In this Terry Funk match, he just did it with so much more aggression and anger. It felt like a, a different person than when he was up against Ricky yeah. Steamboat, which was just a masterclass. Yeah. Horseman, uh, what are you going to say? You're going to anger me I'm going to anger you a lot. Like a lot, a lot. So Ric Flair and TNA basically... The Fortune was meant to be a, a remake of, of The Four Horsemen, right? And, yeah. and a lot of people say, oh, this, this tarnished the name of The Four Horsemen, and it's a joke, and it's a parody. But looking back through WCW in the, in the late tell days, me what I think you're going to say. Well, I think the classic legendary stable had already been dragged through the mud a little bit before TNA was even a sparkle in Jeff Jarrett's eye. Because the amount of members and different types and also flip-flopping between heel and face that the Four Horsemen did in the late 90s, I think really diminished. Okay, this, is, this, isn't as, 
this isn't as painful as I thought it was going to be. I thought you were going to tell me that the Four Horsemen were one of the worst. No, the original Four Horsemen was great. I even watched a match where they came out and they helped Ric Flair win a championship match by cheating. Okay, Fantastic. Make me feel better. Keep going. All the four, all the four original guys, I, I love all of them. I've, I've seen uh, their classic matches or more contemporary matches with all of them in. Fantastic stuff. My point being is that WCW, in their later years, really used the name of the Four Horsemen to try and elevate other people. And in doing so, I think they really weakened the, the name of the Four Horsemen. I don't disagree with that at all. I'm not annoyed about that. I understand why you think... There's like six different variations of the Four Horsemen in the late 90s. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand why you think that I would be upset about that because that is a focal point, actually. I remember having a WCW coloring book <laughs> when I was like six or seven that I'm sure my mom bought from Poundland. And I colored the Four Horsemen, which weren't the Four Horsemen, I kind of, I think, pretty sure all of the old guys were there, and um, Chris Benoit was there, Dean Malenko was there, and it was like this massive drawing of, of the Four Horsemen, which was actually about nine of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, that's a really vivid memory for me. And that WCW iteration of the Four Horsemen is a really vivid memory. But it's what it is. It's purely nostalgia actually looking at that gimmick and the way they utilized it it's it didn't do well it was it didn't add anything really to anyone involved and also looking back now into that period of history they literally it seemed picked up any technical wrestler that they could find whether they had personality or not and threw them into the four horsemen because they're like oh yeah rick flair's technical rick flair's a goat so like obviously we're just going to pick up any guys that do that mat stuff and we're going to throw them in, in with them yeah. missing the whole point of what the four horsemen were because the four horsemen in their day were a better v version of undisputed era really yeah exactly tully blanchard and arn anderson were in the wwf in the real early 90s i don't know how long they were there but do you know what happened with tully blanchard why wcw couldn't have picked him up no, I, I know that they got jobbed as a team in WWF. Yeah, for... but there's no reason that we know of that he couldn't have been used in WCW, even as a as a manager guy, a lot like Arn Anderson was. Um, when did he leave the WWF? Um, I want to say like 91, after not really doing anything of importance. I don't really know what happened to Tully. I, I don't really know what happened to a lot of these guys. I mentioned him already, but... I know he wasn't part of the Four Horsemen, but when I look at Barry Windham in 87 facing Flair, he looks like the future of the business. Yeah. And then I see him in 93 and like he's put on a bit of weight and he's he looks like he's putting less effort into his matches. But he he looks like the veteran that he should be, you know, he looks like he should be at the top of the roster. And he wasn't in 93 and then he just dropped off a cliff. And it seems like a lot of these guys that were involved with with Flair in the 80s had all of the potential in the world and all the talent in the world, and they just got destroyed once the territories were destroyed. And it feels like Flair and Arn were the only people that really properly survived that. Yeah, so I don't know what happened to Tully, but it says here that Ole Anderson was fired by Eric Bischoff in the changing of the guard in 94 before Ric Flair came back to WCW. So it seems like, you know, they never planned on having the four horsemen, so they kind of cleaned out house, got rid of all those guys, and then Ric Flair came back. 
Well, that, that was, that's why I asked you um, when uh, Tully left WWF, because I assumed that if it was later, then he might have been given the back door by Bischoff. But no, I can't understand why he never got picked up. Anyway, the point I was trying to make of all this is that Ric Flair was given the ability to book his own storylines in late WCW, I read. And with the tarnishing of so many members coming in and out of the Four Horsemen, I'm wondering if Ric Flair wasn't a very good booker. He could book his own character and he could sell himself, if you like, extremely well. But when it came to building stories and building matches and stables, he he wasn't the go-to guy. I would agree with you. I, I don't have a note about him not being a good booker, but I do have a note about how I don't believe that he'd be a good full-time trainer for the same reason. A lot of what he does and a lot of what makes him so excellent is the fact that he doesn't really think about it. He lives up to his moniker of the nature boy. Everything he does seems natural and and to a lot of an extent, I think it probably is. And I think if he was booking other guys, he wouldn't be able to explore the depths of their character because he's never, I don't think, really properly sat down and thought about his own. Yeah. He just goes on emotion and feeling and that is what has catapulted him into the hall of fame yeah i mean i would argue that his late 90s run was his worst era in wrestling i think his- it's the only era i can't remember i think his- and that's the only era that i that's the era that i actually grew up in and rick flair is my favorite wrestler so and yeah i think that says something and there's nothing of note for you to remember i think when he returned to, uh, to the WWF in the early 2000s and his early 90s and, 80, and obviously his 80s run is legendary. I have a very, very vague memory from my childhood of seeing Flair in a cage with Hogan, but that could have been at any time, anywhere. So it's just, it's just very fitting to think that the point he was given the most control to go do his own stuff is actually maybe the worst run of his career. Yeah. It's crazy. I didn't get around to watching that Flair Bischoff match. Oh my god. Flair <laughs> versus Bischoff in ninety eight. Yeah, it was at Starcade as well, you told me, wait. Yeah. I, I mean that goes into what I was saying about during the late nineties is worst run. Um it's just a, it's an awful match. And when we were saying before that Ric Flair can mould his style to anybody um eric bischoff's like martial arts high kick style it's not i don't think anyone can get a good match out of that steve austin had a match with him once didn't he if it wasn't good or little fisticuffs or something i remember that it was a really bad pay-per-view actually it was bad blood 2003 and it was uh triple h versus kevin nash in the most pointless hell in a cell match of all time really weird point in wwe history where kevin nash just came in and became the main event for a couple of months and austin and bischoff were having like a triathlon of various stupid shit for control over general manager right the whole thing was terrible right you should check that one out bad bad blood 2003 well i think we've talked about flair for a long time now so i don't want to put you on the spot but i want to ask you uh what is your most your favorite Ric Flair match, the best Ric Flair match, and what you think is the most important match or feud in making Ric Flair. I had to put them in three different categories because I started thinking about it, and my favorite Ric Flair match is very different from what I believe to be the best. And at the same time, I feel like the the most important match of his career is neither of the previous two, which really says something about him. 
I'm going to say the most important match for Ric Flair's career was... I don't know which one exactly, because I've not watched them all, but I have watched a steel cage match of him versus Harley Race. I think yeah, that's it. you're talking Starcade nineteen eighty three. Jesus, you're a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah, but like I mean, even if you've never seen any of the matches, everybody knows about their feud and how much that elevated Ric Flair and maybe the NWA championship belt. Um, that really was Flair's crowning moment, I think. I, I wouldn't agree with you necessarily, but I that's a lasting image of anybody that thinks of Flair where his bleached white hair is completely full of blood and yep. his young kid comes in and there's confetti. Like that was a big moment, definitely. And then what else did you want from me? I want uh, the best and the favorite. I watched a match of him versus Sting, which was a fantastic match. And I, I want to say that Ric Flair was, as Harley Race was important for Sting, I, uh, for Ric Flair, I think Ric Flair was important for Sting. I think that yeah, I definitely think that there was supposed to be a passing of the torch moment there. Yeah, and I think they they've always got one of those legendary feuds that we always talk about where they're just rivals for life and it helped elevate both of them. And in Was fact, that the Clash of Champions? E- match? Yes, I think so. Yeah. And in in fact, um the very last episode of Nitro, uh Ric Flair jobbed for Sting. And I thought that was interesting since though Sting didn't do anything for a couple of years until he turned up in TNA. Yeah, big moment, I think. I, I, I definitely think that Sting, it's not really played in too much, but I, I think that Sting saw Flair as his mentor and the equivalent of, that was the WCW equivalent for us fans of Hogan, Rock, passing the torch sort of thing, which just seemed to have the torch passed every couple of years from the late 80s all the way up to the early 2000s, you know. And your favourite? My favourite match? I don't know if it's my favorite match ever, but I want to talk, just because we haven't spoken about it, I want to talk about his match at WrestleMania 20 because I enjoyed it maybe for the wrong reasons because it had Dave Bautista, The Rock, and Mick Foley in. So I probably am calling that my favorite for the wrong reasons. But I didn't want to mention it because it was fantastic how it was basically a match between The Rock and Ric Flair and a match between Mick Foley and Randy Orton that just happened to be happening happening at the same time i really need to go what back and watch this this is the madden's madison square garden wrestlemania isn't it yeah and it's a three on two handicap match evolution versus rock and sock and uh, for some reason dave batista doesn't really do anything in it other than look sexy on the side of the apron <laughs> and um i i don't know if this was before or during you told me that rick flair and mick foley were like not friends they were beefing. Yeah, they were not friends at this point. They did not like right. each other. And that shows in the match because it really is two singles matches just happening at the same time. It was always The Rock and Ric Flair in the ring. And and that was a fantastic match. I don't know. It's probably not even on the list of his best matches ever, but it was fun for me. I really need to go back and watch that because I don't think I can remember a single other time that Ric Flair has been in the ring with The Rock. And then um, two years later, WrestleMania 22, he's in the Money in the Bank ladder match at age 57. Yeah, I remember that vividly. I remember that back bump drop. Yeah. And then him leaving and then then him coming back. He doesn't do too much in the match because he leaves and he comes back. And when he comes back, he gets another couple moves in and then he's pretty much out of the match. But it's just, it's it's a crazy sight to see him in amongst all of this carnage. I can't remember who he got shoved off by, but just the idea of Ric Flair and 
Rob Van Dam sharing a ring is a bit mental, isn't it? Yep. I think it was Shelton Benjamin that threw him off, but I might be wrong because I didn't write it down. So what's your... What's... Well, I'll definitely go check out that WrestleMania 20 match and I think you make really strong points on the others. I think the most important Ric Flair match and probably like potentially even the greatest wrestling feud of all time is Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes, especially at Starcade 85. Like just more the build up than the matches, really, just like the promos. This is where Dusty's Hard Times promo came from. Okay. This is where all of Ric Flair's best promos came from. It felt so important and it was the simplest wrestling story you could possibly tell, which is like privileged rock star versus family everyman. And, and they realized, I think, watching the Starcade 85 main event, they realized how important this actually was. And I think it made both men's careers more so than they or were already at a level. I think that catapulted them into future legend st- status, just that feud. And it also went on a very long time. They were feuding on and off since like 81, I think. And the 85 was the big final blow-off. Yeah, I know they had quite a lot of matches. Even after that time, they had a few more matches. I don't think there'd ever be a better foil for Ric Flair than Dusty Rhodes. I I think those two were the icons. Like you think of Austin Rock, like you think, I guess, of Cena Orton. Uh, I I think those two were... Every single wrestler, every single major wrestler has always got their perfect opponent that you always think of them having those matches with. And for me, that's Dusty. So that's the most important. Uh, best, I've got Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat, Russell War 89. I'm not sure whether you watch this one, but you'd absolutely love it. A lot of people would consider Ricky Steamboat to be Ric Flair's best ever rival. I, I, I get that, but I get that from a wrestling ability viewpoint. Dust, but not Dusty, Dusty wasn't Ric Flair's best opponent, but he was Ric Flair's best enemy, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, so I've got Wrestle War 89, their match was like 32 minutes, just an absolute masterclass, which I think still stands up today against some of the best matches of the current era. Like, it was just so beyond its time. It had pretty much everything you could possibly want in a wrestling match. But my favorite, and will always be my favorite, Ric Flair match, is his final, well, supposed final match, Ric Flair versus Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 24 which is where we started this whole journey and which is where I'm going to end it. Yeah, actually, that's a very fitting match. I completely forgot about that when you asked me, but that's a fantastic match. Just the the fact that he could go to that ability and that level and, I don't know, just for one night, um, looked like he hadn't lost a step for at least 10 years. Because let's face it, he, he was an 80s flair, but he looked like he could still go to the level that he did when he first came in and he, he went against Vince McMahon. It's just for one night, he looked like a, a fucking superstar. The whole pomp and charade as well, all of the fireworks, and it was just a magical moment. And it's definitely up there as one of my favorite res- one of my favorite WrestleMania moments of all time, but definitely one of my favorite Ric Flair moments of all time. We were discussing it when we were saying if, anybody could give Undertaker a perfect retirement match. And we said Ric Flair had maybe the best retirement match ever. Yeah, yeah, I think he I yeah. think he genuinely did. And then he went to TNA. <laughs> it was just it was just a perfect fitting moment for the end of a massive career and it was a perfect opponent, I think, to send him off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, don't think you could possibly get at that point in 2008. I don't think you could have possibly had anyone else apart from Shawn Michaels do that. 
And honestly, yeah. I think that Undertaker, we won't get into it, but I think Undertaker should have stopped after 28. He had that match, Triple H, Undertaker in a Hell in a Cell. He should have picked his final opponent at 29. A lot of people think that uh, he should have gone out with uh, Shawn Michaels as well at 20. Was it 25 or 26? 26 was their second one. Yeah, so a lot of people think that should have been the last one. But the Triple H um, in the Hell in the Cell, that was a fun match. That was a great match. You started to see the decline once it got to CM Punk 29. And then everything else just kind of went downhill from there. And uh, and, you, and you mentioned Ric Flair and TNA and agreed his matches there were rubbish. He had like something like 12 matches and half of them were tags. I have no memory of Ric Flair matches in TNA. I know they existed and I yeah. know I watched I them. remember the last man standing with Mick Foley and that was just like a bloody war. And I remember both these men at this age should not be blading and doing the crazy shit that they're doing. Was it Flair and Hogan that had a match at Bound for Glory or was it Hogan and Sting? Uh, I don't know. Which, I, I definitely, whichever it was, it was awful. I definitely know there was a uh, a Flair Hogan tag match with Abyss and one of the members of Fortune. Oh, wasn't it? It was. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. It was um Hogan Abyss and Flair AJ because yeah. Abyss had, Hogan had taken Abyss under his wing, which is weird <laughs> for some fucking reason. It's like the weirdest. And then Flair, Flair was trying to make like a really awkward sullen looking child like aj have some charisma he even gave aj like the glittery furry robe and was making him wear suits and stuff Um, about five years later he gave the figure four away to the miz do you remember this stuff no i don't remember that Uh, yeah everything since tna is just yeah he the miz became his protege for a couple of years and he gave the figure four away and said this is yours now you're the new flair I don't know. That's quite fitting. I think the Miz fits as a Ric Flair protege. Don't, don't, mate. It. I don't know. He's he's not the worst character to put that. Anyway, I wanted to just give a <laughs> shout out to Jay Lethal, one of my favorite wrestlers oh, yeah. of all time, and I just wanted to mention the fantastic, very famous promo he did where he's parodying Ric Flair, and the two of them are just having a Ric Flair off, shouting catchphrases doing elbows onto their suit jackets. It's, it's one of my favorite TNA promos of all time. I don't know what this says about TNA, but it's one of my favorite TNA moments of all time. It's fantastic. I don't think it says anything about TNA. I think it just says how great Jay Lethal is, even when he's given a shit task. And this is a this is a plea and appeal based upon how good that promo is and how good everything he does is. Can we please get Jay Lethal in a major company? I think his uh, Ring of Honor run has has gone as far as it can. Um, Let's see him turn up and have a fight against Cody. That would be good. That would be a lot of fun. They need some ethnic minority faces in AEW right now, and I think Jay Lethal's a perfect fit. Yeah, he's got a lot of love for Ring of Honor because he's been there since Ring of Honor opened up day one, and they've always treated him right. Maybe I don't know if he's there through loyalty or he thinks, like a lot of the guys there, that he can help establish the brand to bigger, better things. I don't know. I'm surprised Ring of Honor's still alive at this point. Well, with all the things coming out in the last couple of weeks, they're gonna take a they're gonna take a nasty hit. Yeah. Well I think everybody is. The whole industry is shaking. But let's let's end it with how great Ric Flair was and also not as great, but also how great Jay Lethal is. Greatest of all time, Ric Flair. Forever. For sure, but I still not sold that he is a pop culture icon. Maybe his catchphrases are, but I'm not sure about him. I never said he was a cultural icon, Ben. I said he was part of the cultural zeitgeist. That's just fancy wording to get 
so what are we talking about next week? I'm not sure. Where do you want to go? I would like to start a new jobber corner. Okay. Where we're talking. I think you want to make this a big segment, but I think we should make it a weekly segment where we watch maybe a good match or maybe a bad match. But I want to watch an interesting footnote in wrestling history. I want to watch a, a great Carly. I want to watch a Gangrel. I want to watch a Mordecai. So do you want to start with Gangrel? If you if you want, we can go Gangrel. I'm not sure whether Gangrel ever had a good match, <laughs> so I won't be able to tell you. Great. It's your suggestion, and you don't even think it'll be good. I think we'll start, and this might be the first and the last week of this. <laughs> I think I'm going to give you the homework and I'm sure you're very much looking forward to it of watching Judgment Day 2007 and One Night Stand 2007 uh, John Cena versus Great Carly. Okay, so let's talk about you got to watch back-to-back John Cena versus Great Carly matches you're welcome. <laughs> Alright, so next week we're talking about Great Carly, but only for like 10 minutes. Yeah, no, that's just a little spot what, what do you actually want to talk about? And then, so let's do, should WWE ever have another championship scramble match? Okay, so do you want to just watch the whole of Unforgiven 2008? (laughs) Yeah, let's go go watch old championship scramble matches and let's see if they would work in contemporary WWE. Awesome. That's the only, I'm pretty sure that's the only pay-per-view they actually use them on, right? Oh, is it? Yeah. Or the rest on like a SmackDown or something? I don't think there was any others ever. I'm sure there's like four. Well, we'll have a look into it. All right. Well, that was fun. Until next that week. That was fun. See you. See you, bro. Like, share, and subscribe to keep it botched up, brother.